one of my favorite writers, Brian Doyle, has this essay about a friend on, I think it's actually called On Not Beating Cancer. Um, and he, he himself actually died of brain cancer a few years ago. But the whole thing, there's a line at the end, it's, I'm going to butcher, but I go back to you time and again about, it's like, look, we talk a lot about winning and losing in our society. And like the real thing is to endure and to stick around, and to, to stay, to stay in the game. And I think about that when it comes to running, it's like, that's my whole jam. And I think there's so much to learn from people who are not winning. You know, sports journalism or sports coverage is always, we always focus on the best and how are the people at the top doing? Who's going to win this race? And I love to find the lessons people have from the middle of the pack or the back of the pack, just like the beauty of somebody finishing with like a few seconds to go in the Western States 100, you know, like that's, that's the jam. What's up, everyone? I'm your host, Mario Fraioli, and you are listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Every week on this show, I try to glean unique insights and uncommon inspiration from a wide range of personalities in an effort to help you see what's possible through the lens of running. I am super pumped to share this episode with all of you. It's with Brendan Leonard, who's an ultra runner, writer, award-winning filmmaker, speaker, and creator of one of my favorite websites on the internet, semirad.com. That's semi-rad.com if you want to visit it at home. On top of all of that, he's also a new dad, which we talked quite a bit about in this conversation. Brendan is someone whose work I've admired for quite a while now. He's got an unmatched ability to tell stories, use humor, and share drawings that convey many of the things that we all feel and experience as runners and human beings in general. In this conversation, we bounced all over the place, surprise, surprise, covering topics like ultra running, creativity, storytelling, self-employment, parenthood, where and how all these things overlap and intersect, and a lot more. Before we get into it, a big thank you to New Balance for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. I want to tell you about the new Fresh Foam X More V4. I've been logging miles in this shoe for the past couple weeks now, and it's become a favorite of mine for recovery runs on the road. It's packed with plenty of plush foam underfoot, making it a perfect option for when I'm feeling a little beat up and want some extra protection between my foot and the road. The craziest thing about this shoe, however, is how responsive it is for how much cushion is packed into it. It's rather lively, which is rare for a max cushion shoe, and I, for one, really love it. The Fresh Foam X More V4 is available now on NewBalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. Okay, that's it for the introduction. Please enjoy my conversation with the awesome Brendan Leonard. I 
feel like you're probably the only other person I know who's not in Chamonix right now, spectating or participating or uh, doing something with the UTMB. But I'm glad that you're home, and it's great to have you on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Yeah, thanks. This is a, this is an honor. I feel underqualified, especially this year, uh, but, but it's <laughs> awesome to talk to you. Uh, there, there are no qualifications, so um, you are you are good to go. But fill me in a little bit on just kind of where you're at right now. Before we got on the mics, I said you look like you either just got up from a nap or you've been sleep deprived for a week. You said it was more the more the latter. I know that you're a new dad. Congratulations on that! But bring me up to speed. Oh yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I think in our email conversations you'd say this might be a good time to talk because you'll be figuring out how to fit running in, you know, in between all this crazy stuff. And, um, yeah, it's funny. I was just at the physical therapist yesterday and he gave me the clear, all clear run. Um, very, it's a weird year for me. Uh, new baby. My wife doesn't have a place to work in the house. That's not like she can close a door. So I've been rebuilding this, remodeling a shed in our backyard into, um, an office for her, which typical fashion for me, I'm totally overdoing it. And I sort of aggravated <laughs> this disc injury. So I have this weird numbness in my right leg. And, um, I ran a block and a half last night and I was like, it's not quite there yet. It's like weird motor issues, you know, um, I'm waiting for the numbness to go away because it's like affecting the way I lift my leg. And we went for a hike this morning with Jay, our little guy. And, um, I was like, yeah, it feels pretty good. And I started walking downhill and I was like, Whoa, okay. Um, going to be a few more days of this. So I'm really itching to get back running again. Cause I am signed up for the New York city marathon, which is in like 10 and a half, 10 weeks or something like that. So I need to start doing some mileage. Um, but I was just at the point where I was starting to sneak in two, three, five, six, eight mile runs. And it's just like, whoa, something's wrong here. So yeah. super weird. When you signed up for New York, did you have any inkling at the time that you would be in this situation? <laughs> like a few weeks into fatherhood. Um, I mean, you've had a lot going on. I mean, your dog passed away, which we could talk about yeah. if you want later in this conversation. Um, you're rebuilding a shed in your your backyard. Was it one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time? And you're like, what was I thinking? I Well, like I generally feel like signing up for the thing or buying the plane tickets as a way of committing is a great idea. And um, it's so my friend Sid has run the New York city marathon. Like, I think this would be his 13th or 14th time. This is going to be his last mm -hmm. one. He's like, I'm done after this. So I said, well, I'm, I'm definitely, I'll do it with you this year. And, um, so I was just like, this is the one thing I'm going to try to do. Um, and, and my wife Hillary was like, great, we'll make it work. Uh, and you know, we'll figure it out. And so, yeah, luckily I don't really have expectations going into it. You know, I don't really. Last year, Sid walked almost all of it because he was injured. And I thought, yeah, we can do that this year, too. You know, it's more of a, I don't go into it thinking, oh, I want to get X time or I want to trim off 10 minutes off my last time or I'm going to do that. I just have, I'm like, to me, it's more of a tourism activity and a fun, I don't know. It, it's not like, I know it's a race, but I like just enjoy being there and being in the whole atmosphere and everything. So if I show yeah. up and I run a six hour marathon, sure. That's fine with me. I'll have fun with it. Um, but yeah, it feels like a lot right now for sure. Yeah. Is that your relationship to just road racing or is it races in general where it's mostly a tourism 
activity? Like, do you get competitive when you step on a start line, whether it's road trail or whatever? Only with myself sometimes, but Mm -hmm. rarely, you know, it's like kind of, I guess I came into, I started doing road marathons after I'd done, mostly after I'd done ultra running and ultra running was always like, um, it's a miracle to me that people survive these things. So I'm always just grateful. I'm like, wow, 50 miles. That's incredible. Cause it really is. Right. And like, um, and a hundred miles. Oh my God, that's incredible too. And I realized when you're in the sport, you can, you know, you get this sort of way of thinking where you're like, you don't, you don't, uh, recognize that as like such a human achievement anymore. It's like, Oh no, I need to run fast. I need to perform and blah, blah, blah. But every time I sign up and make it past whatever, you know, 30 miles, I'm like, okay, this is, this is, you know, incredible. So that's kind of, um, I'm just out there to survive and sort of finish. Like I never, I have not DNF'd, uh, an ultra marathon ever. So then to go to a marathon, it's almost like sort of a break, uh, in a way because the distance is shorter and there, you know, fewer Hills. Um, but, yeah, I just haven't ever put pressure on myself to perform. It's more of like, oh, it's in this city. That'll be cool, you know, mm-hmm. or or whatever. Um, New York is, is just like such a, I don't even know how to describe it. You know, like people who have done it get it, but it's the, the experience of running through the crowds, you know, in the city and seeing all five boroughs and running over the bridges, just this amazing one one of a kind thing. And I just feel lucky to get to go and have fun with it. And it's a lot of exercise and it's tiring, but you know, <laughs> it's like, it's cool. It's just a fun thing to do. And yeah, um, I tried hard last year. It's probably the hardest I've ever tried in any marathon ever. And I feel like that was a good one. So maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's the fastest I'll ever run it, but I don't know. It's just cool. So it's just fun. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, who cares except yourself? I mean, you know, you you get out of it what you want to get out of it. If your goal is to break three hours or qualify for Boston or set a personal best or whatever it happens to be, great. Um, But if your goal is to, you know, have a catered tour of the city without having to worry about getting hit by a bus, like that's great too. I mean, there's, you know, there's no problem with that. Um, And I think that's what's great about running. And I wish more people could understand that perspective, whether you're the person who wants to go for a tour of the city or you're the person who wants to go as fast as possible. It's like, hey, everyone's there for their own reasons and and that's okay. Uh, We can all coexist in the same spaces. For sure. You know, the first time I did it, um, I had, it was the year I turned 40 and I was like, decided I'm going to try to run 52 marathons in a year, uh, one year, you know, and it was like, not like I'm trying to run 52 races. It was like, ah, I'll just take off and run 26.2 miles from the house or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever I am and, you know, do it and that'll be fun. And I'll just log as many of these as I possibly can. So by the time I got to New York, it was November, it was like number 44 or something. And I was kind of at the point in the year where I was like, gah, well, it's another marathon, you know, and to run with 53,000 people and to see, how people are experiencing it, you know, as a, I don't want to say it wasn't hard for me, but I had done that distance. I was pretty used to it, but like to see people and like, that was the longest thing they were going to do all year or the longest run they had ever done in their lives. Or it was the first marathon they'd ever done. And they were running it in memory of somebody who had cancer or, 
you know, all these different reasons people bring and they're on these incredibly different human journeys. And I felt like, oh, come on, man, you're going to act like this is not a big deal. This is a big deal, you know? And um, it's interesting to see how different it is for everybody, you know? Um, and we're all just loping along, trying to get through it in some way. But it was, uh, it was really cool to see and really fun to experience that way. How long ago was it that you did your 52 marathons in the year. You have to date yourself. Sorry. Is that 2019? Yeah. Okay. So just a few years ago. Yeah. So we, I mean, we ran New York the same year then. That was the year I did. Oh, I think I saw you. First time. Yeah. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you, so did you do a marathon a week? Like how did you, how'd you structure it? Do you say like every week I'm going to go out and like run a marathon distance? I mean, like you said, mostly from home, you entered official ones like New York. Like I guess what was your, what was your cadence? Um, did you have to pack a couple of them close together? Did you hit all 52? I got a lot of oh, questions. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so the, the counting of it is interesting. Um, so I started and I thought, you know, I need to front load this because if I get injured, I'm going to have to take a few weeks off or you just don't want to be at like, like late December being like, yeah, I got to run six marathons in the next two weeks. So I think I did the first two within three or four days of each other. Um, this was at my parents' house in Iowa running on gravel roads. And then I was signed up for a hundred mile race and then I sort of backed my way into another one where I was supposed to pace a friend, but he got injured. And I kind of jokingly said, maybe I'll just sign up or maybe I'll just take your spot. And he's like, yeah, go for it. Like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> and by that time, I, I had said I had said to him, this is my friend Forrest, and, uh, who's in Chamonix uh, right now. Um, I said, you know, I think I'm trying to do all these marathons this year. I think if I run a hundred mile race, that only counts as one marathon. He was like, no way. That's three marathons. You need to count them as three. That's ridiculous. So whatever I did, the, the hellbender 100 in North Carolina. And, you know, I started my watch at the beginning and ran my 26.2 miles and noticed I was at 26.3 and stopped my watch and restarted it again. So <laughs> I have all these weird uh, Strava things where it's like segment three of the the Hellbender 100 or segment three of, of the, the Bighorn 100. I think I did a 50, I did a hundred K later that year too. So this is weird. And like people, people do, you know, they'll do 52 marathons in a year. They'll do 52 races and they're all, you know, mm -hmm. they travel around to do it. And I just kind of wanted to see, I don't know. I just kind of wanted to do something that was kind of interesting. And, you know, I would take off from the house and like, run around the park a bunch, come back, refill up my water bottles, you know, take off running again, you know, pick up a friend for a couple miles, take the dog for a few, whatever. And it was just like, yeah, I just want to be out doing this. And I'm super lazy when it comes to running, you know, like I know people run every day or run five times a week. And I'm like, this is an awesome way for me to only run three times a week, but also run 40 miles a week, which is to me, the magic point where I can eat as much pizza as I want. So it was like, yeah, knock out 26.2. And then, yeah, I got to do an eight mile run and a six mile run. I'm good, you know? So, um, how did that year long experiment change your relationship with running? If it did at all? Yeah, boy, that's a good question. Um, I think that was, so the number one thing I remember thinking about it going into it was like, you can't just like, you can't make this a thing that takes over your entire 
uh, year and all, you know, like it can't just, it can't just be the one thing you do. Like you need to, you can't come home from running a marathon and just be like, lay down on the couch and put your feet up and be like, well, I'm not doing anything the rest of the day, you know? So it was like this thing to try to teach myself how to deal with the fatigue of running 26.2 miles, but not let it interrupt my entire life. You know, it wasn't like, okay, now I have to recover and like, whatever, take an ice bath and then just chill out the rest of the day. It was like, get home from running a marathon, do some work, unload some mulch, like build a patio. You know, it's like I was doing labor and, you know, okay, you're not getting out of walking the dog or, or doing anything else. It was like, teach your body that this is not the biggest thing that it can do. It has to like keep going after that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, like the biggest thing was like, it was fun to try to find different ways to make it interesting um, for me because you didn't want to, we lived at that point uh, one mile from city park in Denver. So I don't know how many miles I logged in city park that year, but I'd run down to the park and then just keep running around in circles or little, you know, ins and outs in these paths wearing an ultra vest, like, you know, just, it just would take forever. And it felt like that I would come home and like, it could get really boring really fast if that's all I did. So, um, yeah, I explored, you know, one park, one of the County parks. I was like, I'll just run every mile of trail in this park, you know, this, this time. And, you know, that was a way to keep it interesting. So I don't know how it changed it that much. It did teach me that 40, I can run a hundred mile race on 40 miles a week training, you know, Mm -hmm. like that was okay. I'm like, yeah, this is fine. Um, so that was the, the number one thing, I guess, was the keeping it interesting and then like having it be realizing that was sort of the magic number for me. It was 40, you know, like, okay, yeah, yeah, this is good for me. So my follow up to that is when you checked off number 52 and, you know, because this is totally self-contrived, the next week you didn't have to run another marathon like what what was that like did you find yourself sort of standing there one day being like well what do i do now just go out and run like six miles or 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 what because you you hear this from people who like do especially when they're doing like you know like the at or they're doing the pacific crest trail or something they're just out every day putting in all these miles and then they finish the thing and then they're just like well what do i do now uh type of thing like it's almost hard to transition back to the quote unquote normal life because that was every day for the past however many months and for you this was like not every day but it was pretty much every week for a year and then you're like well i'm I'm done i could keep going but maybe i don't want to like take me through that boy you know i don't even remember now i'd have to almost look at my strava and see what i did the next week but um you saying that reminds me of this guy, Jason Lewis. I think it's Jason Lewis. I saw him speak one time in Denver, but he he circumnavigated the globe entirely under human power. This is like, mm-hmm. I don't know how many years ago. It took him seven years to do it because he like, I mean, he like pedaled a, pedaled a pedal boat from England to the U S and then became the first person to rollerblade across the U S but he got hit by a car in the middle of it and broke his legs. He spent some time in the hospital until he healed and then finished the rollerblading. And then like, it was this big thing, but he had, and then he like paused for, he had to like stop in Australia and work for a couple of years to earn money to pay for the rest of the expedition. But 
seven years. And when he finished, he had like PTSD from like, oh, you know, what do I do now? Um, yeah. And I think I'm like, by the time it's 80% done, there's like the anxiety of, okay, I got to finish this thing. Like I'm worried as long as like, I don't have, I don't know, an IT band issue or like some sort of injury. I'm like already moved on to the next thing. I'm like, okay, what am I going to do next year? You know, or whatever. Um, so I don't remember what I did the next week. I remember thinking as the last one was approaching going, well, this, maybe I'll make this special. Maybe I'll invite some friends, you know, to come join me for part or all of it or, or the end of it or whatever. And then maybe we'll all go, maybe we'll do a little party or something like that. And, and I thought, you know, you've done this entire thing, like, mostly just in your own head by yourself, you know, yeah, friends, you know, I had some friends join me for some of it or, or my wife, Hillary would have joined me, but I was like, you need to just do this by yourself. And, you know, it was like, ah, oh, maybe I'll do it this week. And, you know, I, I don't remember what day of the week it was, but I just told Hillary at like whatever, two or 3 PM in December, whatever day it was in the middle of the week, I was like, I think I'm gonna finish the marathon thing today. And she's like, okay. And I just took off running and it was like crappy weather and, it was like spitting rain. It was like 40 some degrees and just sucked. And I was running around city park in the dark and it just was just shitty. You know, it was just a bad, it was like, you don't want to be out running in it. And I was just running with like the smile on my face thinking this is perfect. Like this is how you want to end it. Right. You don't want it to be like this sunshiny thing where there's like this party and then you go pizza, do pizza and like, you know, like, hang out and talk to people who weren't there for the entire thing. It's like, no, you were, this is your stupid idea that you decided to do by yourself. So you should finish it by yourself. And it felt so appropriate um, that way. And yeah, nothing, it's no big deal. It's like, yeah. yeah. Aside from the runs uploading to Strava, when you did them, did you make any sort of public proclamation that you were doing this thing through your social media or otherwise oh, yeah. or was yeah. it just completely in your own head and you're like I'm, I'm doing this thing maybe people will notice if they know me or they happen to follow my my Strava but otherwise like I'm just I'm just not gonna like talk about it on my on my social media or in my newsletter or wherever else you put stuff out into the world yeah no not at all because I was like that's a that's a guarantee for me that it'll something will happen and it'll, it won't and it'll, I won't be able to do it you know because I always I always feel like that when people announce the big thing I'm like oh I hope hope that works for you um, I think there's a couple types of psychological approaches to that you know where you where you decide to set a big goal you know like say oh, I'm gonna write a book you know and there's uh, a certain mindset of people have read about where announcing the big goal on social media or something like that is a way for them to reap the rewards of actually doing the, doing the thing without doing the thing, you know, because people are like, congratulations, that's so cool. You're going to write a book. And I'm like, hold on. It's not like a small thing. It's like, now you got to sit down in a room and write a thousand words a day for like months, you know, it's like, um, and I am of the other type of person who would rather not talk about anything until it actually is like happening, you know? Um, like I would, you know, we, you know, we just had a baby July 4th and I didn't really tell that many people, you know, that weren't close friends. Cause I was like, I almost feel like I'm going to jinx it. You know what I mean? Especially, you know, yeah. Hillary's, you know, an older, um, mom, she's 40. And it was like, man, you know, I don't know. This could not, this could go a lot of different ways. And until we 
leave the hospital with healthy mom and healthy baby, I don't really think I'm going to be blasting this out on the internet because I don't really, if that becomes a thing where something goes wrong, I don't actually want to have to deal with it publicly. Um, same thing with the marathon thing. I was like, I can see why people would publicize things like that, especially if you're raising money for a charity or something like that. You know, if, if I were raising money for like ALS or something like that, it would be a good idea to publicize it. But this was just some dumb shit guy running around in his backyard, like doing a thing just to see if it, you know, if he could do it, you know, there wasn't really a reason to besides what am I going to learn from it, which happens afterwards, you know, not, not in the middle of it. So yeah, I kept it pretty quiet. I really appreciate that approach, especially this day and age where we live and work so much online. I mean, you and I both do this in our respective career fields. And even as as athletes today, and I'm, I'm putting that in air quotes, like I'm not a professional athlete, you're not a professional athlete. Most of the people listening to this aren't a professional athlete, but we share what we're doing on social media. We upload our runs to Strava. Other people can, you know, can see it now and and be aware. And it does feel a little performative, I think, in in some ways. And um, I certainly feel that way with this podcast. Like it is a performance in in some ways and and it's going out, but I'm doing the thing. Um, But I also think it's important to do things that just don't get talked about and are are quiet and you like kind of keep them close to the vest just for yourself. And and I I feel like in my experience and my observations, a lot of people are losing sight of that today, whether it's an athletic pursuit, whether it's a creative pursuit, whether it's a professional pursuit. It's like, well, I have to, sh- I must share it online. Um, even if I have, you know, 25 followers or 2000 followers or 200,000, followers, like I must share everything that I'm doing online. It's like, no, you, you don't have to, you can do something for yourself, you know, keep it quiet, tell a few people who, you know, you know, really well, or, or might be interested in it. Um, because I do think when you start to put stuff out in, in public, even if you have to, because it's, it's your job, it does change your relationship to it. For sure. I mean, do you ever get really jealous of somebody who you find out is like, not on social media? Um, there's this endurance cyclist, Alexandra Houchin. She just doesn't do Instagram, anything like that. But she crushes out and wins these huge races and like i'm like man what a life (laughs) that'd be awesome (laughs) you know but yeah you you see it with some athletes i mean you see it with some authors and writers Mm -hmm. who who don't have social media or much of like a a public persona i mean I'm not trying to give myself credit, but speaking for myself, I don't have any personal social media, haven't for two years now. And when I when I went off of social media, and I, I do talk about my relationship to it, like an addict would talk about their relationship to drugs or, or alcohol. But when I, you know, when I when I went when I went off social media, I was worried about, you know, am I gonna be relevant? Will my work still matter? Can I do the things that I'm doing without having a presence online in that way. Um, I can say two years later, yes, you you can, but it's a scary, it's a scary jump. Um, and I too, like, am I wouldn't even say jealous, just more inspired by by those folks. I look at someone like a Cal Newport, who's a best selling author, has and has never had any social media. Um, just so many people out there that. Um, I admire in that, in that way, but they're, they're certainly a rare breed. Yeah. And I, I think mine is more like just neglect of it. I'm like, well, I should be doing, I feel like, oh, I should do something more for 
Instagram or something. I'm like, I don't want to do that today, you know? And yeah. you got to think like you're, you're like, you're reaching people through your newsletter and your podcasts. And how does that grow? Probably word of mouth, you know, could you reach more people yeah. if you were like tweeting 15 times a day or like doing, you know, putting your, putting your podcast on like Instagram reels or something like that? Yeah, you probably could, but is growth always like healthy or the point, you know, it's like, I feel like this is an American thing, you know, it's like your company has to keep growing or the stock market, you know, you know, or, or your stock won't, won't uh, increase in price. And it's like, well, okay, maybe we could just like make the best guitars we can make and only make a couple hundred of them a year. And we don't need to like, you know, employ 600 people or, or whatever. It's like, I don't know. I, I question like how far, how big do you want to get? How many, how many people do you want to have working for or with you? Like, man, I don't know. Maybe I just want to make my stuff and, you know, be cool with the, whatever level that is. Hey, man, that, that resonates with me. I mean, we've been all over the place with this conversation already in the first, you know, 25 minutes. And I do want to get back to my original question. But, um, yeah, I feel that in, in a big way. And, I mean, that's sort of the approach that I've decided to take from a professional standpoint is I, I don't need to be the biggest or the most popular. I want to do the things that fulfill me and that create a lot of value for the people who care about it. And that goes for people who listen to this podcast, subscribe to my newsletter, the handful of athletes that I coach. I, I could expand all of those things if I wanted to. And I have, and I'm sure you have too, had well-meaning people come to me and say, hey, if you spent, this was years ago, a few bucks on Facebook advertising, you could 10x the size of your newsletter. I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, you know, or if you hired, you know, four people, you know, you could really spread this thing. I'm like, ah, I, I have a few people who do very specific tasks for me that I'm just not very good at and help me to focus on the things that I am good at. But beyond that, I don't want to have a staff. Like I'm a terrible manager. I'm not, I'm a horrible boss. Uh, I have enough time keeping myself in line. Um, So it's like, yeah, I, I, and I, I respect the people who, who go that route because um, it's hard. I mean, that's, it's not easy. It's not easy to grow either. Um, But I think you have to have a certain like, personality for that or aptitude for it. And I, I definitely don't. Yeah. No, and ambition really, uh, yeah. not to interview you and, uh, flip the tables, but can you an- fire away? Can you answer all of your fan mail personally right now? No, not in a timely manner. Yeah. But, but can you get to most of it? Yeah, I can. Um, and I've been pretty systematic about that because, I, at least with email, which is the main way that people communicate with me, whether they respond to my newsletter or they go to my personal website and fill out the contact form, none of that in my head is urgent. Mm -hmm. So I see it come in and it goes right to a folder and I'll get to it when I get to it. Mm -hmm. And some people will, will write me in response to something. And I do have a personal policy that anyone who takes the time to write to me, as long as they're not a jerk, which thankfully, knock on wood, I haven't had many jerks write me over over the years, I will take the time to to write back. And it's been something that I've been able to do and until now, and maybe someday I won't, but I won't reply to people for like a month or like a month and a half or two months. And they'll forget that they even wrote me in, in the first place. Um, but I always try to get back to them, but it's never 
I shouldn't say it's never, it's rarely right away or in a timely, you know, in a timely manner. But I do have, I do have a folder in my inbox where kind of all of that reader and listener mail goes to, and I I get to it when I get to it and I'll carve out time and I'll usually just like bang it out in like an hour, Mm -hmm. you know, two hours. And, um, I can't be as thoughtful as I'd like to be yeah. in a lot of my replies, but I want to acknowledge anyone that's ever taken the time to write to me. And and it comes in waves. I mean, sometimes it depends on on what I share. And a lot of times it's the it's the personal stuff, as I'm sure is probably the case with you as well, where you you get the biggest response. And two years ago, a little over two years ago, when my grandmother passed away, I scrapped what I had wrote in my newsletter for that day. And I I wrote on the bus to the airport as I was flying home for her her services, um, a little reflection on that. I mean, I got hundreds of replies, like hundreds of replies. It took me four and a half, five months to get back to everybody. But, but eventually I did. I mean, I kind of read everything a little more timely than that, but I couldn't get back to people in a, in a timely fashion. I've, I've become at peace with that, uh, that I don't have to respond right away. Yeah, I feel like the more I think about it, I feel like that sort of level is probably the sweet spot for this type of, for what you do and for what I do. You know, like if, Mm -hmm. if you did grow your newsletter by four times and you got four times the responses, that'd be fine. You would know you're reaching people, but you couldn't really connect with them in the same way. If that makes sense. Like, yeah, exactly. And I don't think I'd ever want to get like, quote unquote, so big that I couldn't eventually respond to people who, you know, who, who wrote me. Um, Cause again, I think then you get to a point where you're just chasing growth for growth's sake, or you can't really understand how your work is really impacting someone. And I think that's the, the real value for me and hearing from my readers and listeners in particular is they tell me how something that I wrote or a conversation that I had sat with them, impacted them, forced them to, or encouraged them to change something in, in their own life. And that means a lot. But I think if it got too big and I, I couldn't do that, I would lose perspective and I don't want to do that. Right. And it's like by, by you doing the podcast and the newsletter and sharing bits of yourself and the guests you curate and your style of interviewing people and, and pulling stories out of them, you get this sort of fan base and the people who interact with you, you get access to all these really interesting, just high quality human beings, at least in my experience, you know, where I've sat back and just been like, I would have never heard that story from somebody had I not written some stupid blog one day in 2015 or whatever. And it's like, that's the gift, right? Like the living is great. You know, it's nice to not have to have a real job or whatever, but like, I mean, the real thing is the connection and being able to yeah. interact with those people you would have never had a chance to talk to in another way. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this um, on on this topic. I mean, very recently, you've had two major life events happen: your dog passed away, and your son was born. And I I wrote you after Rolf passed away, and we had a little exchange over that, and eventually set up this conversation. If I had to guess you probably got more responses to that than maybe you could have replied to from people who thought of their own dog because of the stories that you shared or wanted to go hug their own dog or just like, you know, just just knew exactly where you were 
in that moment and share their little bit of themselves with you, which, I mean, that's what happened when I wrote about my Nana passing away. Um, same sort of, you know, same sort of thing. And, and you do connect with these like amazing human beings who are like, Hey man, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Oh yeah. And I mean, it was like, it was a little overwhelming, honestly. Like it was, things were getting mailed to like skin stuff in the mail. And I was like, Oh yeah. But it's like, um, I feel like most of my job is trying to find the words or the images or something to capture feelings that people have that they have never put the words to, you know, like people will, when, when you do it right, somebody will say, Oh, I could have wrote this myself. And they don't mean, I could have written, I could have done this, you know, your art, I could have done it. They mean this came from, it's such a familiar place to me that you just really nailed it. And like, that doesn't happen every week for me or even every month. But when it does, you're like, okay, I have done my job and found words for this specific part of the human experience. And, you know, when our dog died, I just like let loose for like a couple hours in here and, you know, in my office and was just typing away and like trying to, process everything and you know i showed it to my wife hillary who's my editor who's also a professional editor lucky me um but uh you know i was like yeah it's probably ill-advised and sloppy and really just you know just kind of like word vomit and she's like it is a little bit but it's fine it's not like you're you know just put it out there and it yeah i'm so glad i did because so many people reacted to it in the same way it's like yeah yeah this is like this is how i felt too and you know, um, yeah, like that's a, that's a real connection you can have beyond, yeah. um, people laughing at your stuff or whatever, which is great too. But, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, as, as one of your readers, it was raw, but that's part of what really helped me to connect to it because I, for a second, put myself in, in your shoes and, like that's a raw moment, um, you know, to, to lose your dog, like your, your companion and, um, kind of to, to have it in your case, like somewhat, you know, unexpectedly, um, you know, or very quickly, I should say mm-hmm. from going, going from like sick to him not being here anymore. And like, I, I read that and, and that's exactly it. I was like, I was like, man, I'm like, I like that, it, it, exactly what you just described. Like, I don't know that I would have had the exact same words, but I would have felt the exact same way. And you found a way to, you know, articulate it and make me, you know, make me feel that. And my, my follow-up question to that feedback is when did you realize you had that skill or ability to, whether it was words or through drawing or video to, just articulate the human experience in, in different ways that other people resonated with? Boy, you know, I had a column in my student newspaper in college in undergrad and it was just goofy. It was just like, I don't think I wrote a serious word the entire time. Um, and that's what spurred me to try to go get, well, to come to move to Montana and get, uh, go to grad school for journalism because it was like, oh my God, I'm about to graduate with a marketing degree and I don't think I want to do that. So here's my here's my way of getting out of that. And um, I think it might have been, this, I took a creative nonfiction class because you had to take one or two classes outside of the journalism school. Um, and 
it might have been smart for me to just get an MFA back then because that's sort of where I never really wanted to do journalism that much, I guess. Um, but it seemed like a practical thing. It was like, instead of painting oil paintings, you paint houses and you can make a living theoretically. Uh, so I chose that as a, as a uh, practical Midwesterner. Um, but I did this creative nonfiction class and uh, the professor, Judy Blunt, had had, I think she's a New York Times bestselling author with, with a memoir she wrote. And you had to meet with her at the beginning of the semester and talk about what you were going to write about. And I was like, I mean, I don't really have a lot of interesting experiences. You know, the summer before I moved here, I was, I spent, you know, five weeks in substance abuse treatment and a week in jail. And she's like, well, you should write about those things. Most people don't get to go to those places. And I was like, yeah, they don't get to, do they? Um, <laughs> and I wrote a couple essays for that class that were, a couple of them eventually made it into a book in some way, but I remember I got feedback on this one that was one page, you know, and um, it really, like I just somehow just nailed it once, you know, for this class of 10 people, you know, and a couple of them didn't like my stuff at all um, or hated it, but the people I respected, their writing in the class, a few of them were like, this is a really good piece. It really, you know, whatever hit me in this way. And it was like, okay, maybe I can write some serious stuff and maybe it can, maybe I can figure out how to do this. But it was a very early, great piece of feedback where it was really encouraging um, beyond like you got an A or, or whatever. Um, and I think maybe that gave me the confidence to try to, write those types of things later, whether or not magazines or newspapers wanted to print them because my experience was they, they didn't want to print them. Um, mm -hmm. so I just did it myself, published stuff myself. And eventually that led me to where I am. Um, but yeah, that was probably it. So 2000, was that spring, fall, 2003? Jeez. Um, but yeah, that was the first feedback I got that was positive and gave me that sort of, yeah, a little bit of confidence, I think. And was that the spark that eventually led to you starting Semi-Rad and having that be your outlet that you owned where you could do whatever the fuck you wanted? I mean, maybe, yeah. I think that was a little bit of it, but mostly it was like, um, mostly it was trying so hard to get you know, articles in magazines and then sort of realizing, I don't know if this is what I want to do. You know, I'd pitch magazines, different ideas, and they would either, you know, at first they would send, you know, hard copy letters back in those days to be like, yeah, your idea was not right for us, whatever, thanks, you know, good luck, or just ignore you. And, you know, I started eventually to end up getting these assignments for magazines, but it was never like, you know, interesting things I want to write about. It was always like 10, you know, traverse hikes, you know, that the author has done two of and, you know, research the other ones or whatever. And it wasn't like great writing that you wanted to do. And I had watched a friend, Fitz Cajals, who had a similar experience where magazines didn't want his stories. So he started reading them into a recorder in like 2006 or seven. And he was, it was like the first podcast I ever listened to, The Dirtbag Diaries. And it, it took off immediately and I think became a full-time oh. living with him for him within like two years. And I was like, well, maybe that's, a, maybe that's a thing I could do, you know? Just do stuff for free because it's fun. 
And very pretty quickly, this when I started my blog in 2011, a few people I respected started to take note, notice, and, and it led to paying work pretty quickly. Um, and it was the type of work I wanted, as opposed to like the listicles or whatever um, I get paid for. And like, I mean, it was good timing. Like people were reading websites back then. Uh, it was, seemed to be like a voice of people. It was sort of fresh or a fresh perspective. And oh man, I'm so thankful for that because I'm. It sort of led to me doing a lot of what I want, as opposed to trying to fit my square peg into all these different round holes um, to yeah. try to make a living. So, when was it that you could finally say, "All right, now I can just do what I want"? because it's generating enough of an income that I can support my family and, and pay the bills. And I don't necessarily need to take on outside assignments or outside work. I can just do, you know, what interests me and what I want to do. Man, I think, um, I think there's always still going to be an element of trying to cater to somebody, right? Like, but I think I started a Patreon, uh, account in like, 2017 2018 and it was kind of like hey i make this stuff for free if you want it to keep going here's where you can kick in some money and right away it was a chunk of money that was like oh okay this will help you know and then pretty you know gradually over the next year or so it became like this is this is a living you know and like i would love to just you know, make my complete income off of Patreon. Be like, yeah, I'll just make it for these people, you know? Um, because I think the way I think too is like, oh, this art or this resource such as like a newspaper I read or, you know, the New Yorker or whatever, I want this to keep going. So I'm going to kick in some money because we've all been like, oh yeah, there's no, I wish our main street in our town had more businesses on it. And then we go order stuff off Amazon. We're like, yeah, I wonder why that's happening, you know? Um, so it's good analogy. Yeah, it's like support support businesses that you want to exist. So um, I think that was like the biggest thing for sure. Where it was like, and I still I could not I could not make a living just off of Patreon. But that's enough people. Um, it's like a little over a thousand people. You've probably heard of Kevin Kelly's. Uh, article oh, thousand, thousand true, true fans. fans yeah which is like yeah, 20 years old off at this to point. It a bunch of times yeah and it's like okay this is you know it's not quite like the financials don't quite work out to what kevin kelly said but like that's enough people who are like went through clicked on the website signed up for an account we're like i'll click kick in two bucks a month or whatever and like that's great you know and like that's a to me it's more of a vote of confidence as well as like yes thank you for helping me pay my mortgage um but yeah um, I'm trying to evolve and explore that in ways where like, I want to make it really worth it for those people to keep doing that. And, you know, like I filter, sometimes I don't respond to people's emails. If like, if somebody's asking me for something, I will check and be like, oh yeah, this person definitely supports me on Patreon. Sure. I'll do you this, whatever, small or large favor, you know, that's cool. You're invested, you know, um, as opposed to somebody just asking out of the blue, like, Hey, you should make this t-shirt. You should do this or that. Yeah. It's like extra effort. I'm like, maybe not, man. You know, like, um, 
It's like when people ask you for a huge favor, if they, if they preface the whole thing with like, I bought every one of your books, you're like, great. What do you, what do you need? As a, what can I do for yeah, you? Yeah, as exactly. opposed to like, I have an idea of how you can make your art work for me better for free. <laughs> like, all right, man, you know what? I would love to, but I got to make a living. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. So that was the, I think that's 2018 maybe. Yeah. To circle back to my original question at the start of this conversation, bringing it back to the here and now you're, you're at a new point of your life where you have to keep a, another human being alive. You're going to be largely responsible for him for at least the next 18 years or so uh, until he can go out and be an adult on his own. How do you anticipate your life changing or how has it already changed now that you've got to prioritize that and also prioritize your job creating things and still find the time to go out and adventure and run and do the things that light you up in that way? Yeah. Um, you know, when we found out we were pregnant, I start, I like, I have tremendous anxiety about the entire thing. I, at a certain point before Jay was born, I told Hillary, I'm like, you know, I think having a kid is probably my biggest fear in life, you know, and we're taking it head on here. So, um, I interviewed, I think I interviewed 28 friends of mine who are dads. Um, and it was just like hour long interview. I asked the same 24 questions of everybody. And, um, some are logistical, some are like, what was your relationship with your dad? Like, and how does that influence, you know, how you're a parent and stuff like that. And it was extremely illuminating, but also helpful in, in that every time I hung out from one of these interviews, I was like, it's going to be okay. You know, like this person who, is a friend of mine and is not a perfect human being is doing okay. And they think I'm going to do okay. So here we are. But the things I remember people saying, it's just like, you had no idea how much free time you had. And I, I think I had an idea. I think I had an idea of like, <laughs> I do have a lot of free time and I'm really inefficient with it. And I think, um, I always think that's like part of the creative process. Um, yeah. I agree with that. That said, it's relentless at the beginning, you know, like I'm not even doing the like nursing, you know, like I'm not even, you know, doing all the stuff Hillary's doing. And um, so we're almost at eight weeks here. and It's an ass kicking, man. I feel like we're like treading water. Um, but, you know, I'm thinking, how do I sneak in the runs? How do I sneak in time to create stuff? How do I, when do I answer email? When do I like you know, think of new ideas. So like for, for things I sell in my shop or new creative ideas. And I have snuck here and there and done like little pieces of stuff. And, um, you know, I'm like, I should be on like a marathon training plan right now. And I'm like, I think I'm trying to think of it in like weekly mileage, like not, I need to do a 10 mile run this day. And then like an eight mile run on Friday, it's more like, can I get in like 25 miles in any sort of, you know, uh, increments. Permutation. Yeah. It's just yeah. like, maybe I can do two in the morning before everybody gets up. And then like maybe three after dinner. And that's like, it's not a five mile run, but it's five miles total. You know, um, I'm thinking about how to figure it, how to make those things work. And I think, at the beginning, it's like, 
I'm reminding myself is not always going to be like this. This kid is eventually going to, you know, not be using up like 150 diapers a day or whatever. Like, you know, we're going to, we're, we're like in like the hardest part. Like if there's a time when a human being is the least self-sufficient, it is like literally the first 12 weeks of their life. Like they can't do anything. (laughs) It's amazing. We continue as a species, honestly, like this is incredible to me. Um, So I'm figuring it out. I don't know. I don't know. I'm thankful that we're both sort of self-employed and we're not, we don't have designs on like, Oh, I need to keep my business going at this level or we need to pack away this much money per month for retirement or something. It's just kind of like, well, shit, we'll see what happens, you know? Um, so there's no pressure on either way. It's just like, keep the thing alive, keep us both, you know, as happy as we can be. And like, don't, don't fight. Don't like, let's just keep, keep things going, uh, keep the boat afloat. Um, so yeah, I'm trying to allow myself grace to realize that I, my life can have seasons. You know, I was thinking about talking to you for this podcast. I'm like, God, I hope Mario doesn't look at my Strava before we get on the phone. He's going to think I'm like, he's like, do you even run anymore? Um, cause last year, the month I did, it was like 23 days in the fall. I did a hundred K race did the presidential traverse in New Hampshire and then ran the New York city marathon all in like 23 days. And I was like, that was a great fall. That's probably not going to happen this year. Um, so I'm trying to, and that's okay. Yeah, exactly. And like, but as runners, you know, you're kind of like, well, I ran X miles last year and I did these events. I should be trying to like look at a race calendar. And I'm like, nah, man, just survive. Like literally get through the first six months and figure out what you want to do and what's possible. And like that stuff is, it's definitely part of your identity, but like, and I would, I miss it right now for sure. Not having that big goal. That's like terrifying enough to get me out the door four times a week and running up the mountain at the end of our street. But, uh, it's like, it'll, it's there, it'll be there, you know, next year. Yeah. So, yeah. I think the important takeaways there though, whether, you know, you're a, a new parent or not, and I'm not, is that one, like it is cyclical or, or running should be cyclical. I mean, as a, as a coach, like I would never tell one of my athletes like, Hey, we're going to run the same mileage every week throughout the year, no matter, you know, no matter what, but people get into that mindset where they're like, well, this is what I do. I do track on Tuesdays. I do like a tempo run on Thursdays. I do my long run on Saturdays and something disrupts that, whether it's illness, a new child, a new job. I mean, you, you know, you name it. I see this all the time, like in my own life and with people that I, that I've, I've coached like, but I am hell bent on sticking to this schedule. And it's like, you just got to let it go. Like other things are taking priority right now. Eventually it's going to settle and you're going to find you know, find a new groove and find that place. And that's okay. And it may not look exactly like it did before and that's okay, but it can still be like a meaningful, joyful, productive pursuit, but you got to just accept where you are at the moment. And like, you're in it right now. Like you're just like fully in it. Like you said, like 150 diapers a week and, you know, just, just keeping him alive and just trying to like, you know, wake up the next day and be like, all right, we did it again. Yeah. Um, type, you know, type of thing. But I, I think people need to hear that because I think, again, like to kind of the theme that's developing in this conversation, like that's the human experience and we all have it like kind of in our own ways. But when we're going through it, most of us feel very alone. Um, like, oh, no one else has ever experienced this before, but you hear other people talk about it and just, just like one other person, you're like, oh, okay. Like 
this isn't great, but other people have gotten through it, so I'm going to be okay. For sure. And, you know, like yesterday, I was digging a trench in our backyard to run electrical to this. Anyway, it's not fun, but I'm listening. I was listening to your interview with Tommy Rivers Pusey and like Mm -hmm. talk about just a perspective shift and just the humility of this guy who is like a really high achieving athlete and the battle he's been through with cancer. And there was some line he said later, late in the episode where it was just like, yeah, I'll probably never run competitively again, you know, and I'm okay with that. I'm just happy to be here, you know, and the way he approaches stuff is like, I'm like, yeah, I, I think I'm okay. Personally, myself, I like, I'm dealing with a little injury right now. I'm not running as much as I would like to, but okay. You know, like this guy, like to hear somebody's story in that manner, uh, the way, the way you two pulled it out in conversation is like, all right, we're good here. You know, like this guy's doing this. I can, I can deal with whatever I'm dealing with right now, which I'm sure yeah. you've heard from I'm, a million people at this point. I'm glad you've brought that up. Cause I do think at least as far as conversations that I've had or put out publicly, that's the ultimate example. It's like, all right, that's some perspective for you. Um, you know, you're not to diminish, you know, what's going on in anyone's life, but it's like, my problems probably aren't like quite, you know, quite that bad. And he's able to like shift his mindset to be like, I'm just grateful to be here and do what I can do. And I think, I mean, I think that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. It's like, all right, just, just focus on what you can do. And if what you can do is a, a 10 minute run today, it's like, great. Like that's it. You know, maybe eventually with time, like that'll become 30 minutes or eventually a, an hour. And then you can take advantage of that. But it's like right now, if you got 10 minutes, like make the most of those 10 minutes. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. There's uh, one of my favorite writers, Brian Doyle has this essay about a friend on, I think it's actually called on not beating cancer. Um, and he, he himself actually died of brain cancer a few years ago, but the whole thing, there's a line at the end, of, I'm going to butcher, but I go back to you time and again about, he's like, look, we talk a lot about winning and losing in our society. And like the real thing is to endure and to stick around, and to, to stay, to stay in the game. And I think about that when it comes to running, it's like, that's my whole jam. And I think there's so much um, to learn from people who are not winning you know, sports journalism or sports coverage is always, we always focus on the best and how are the people at the top doing? Who's going to win this race? And I love to find the lessons people have from the middle of the pack or the back of the pack, or just like the beauty of somebody finishing with like a few seconds to go in the Western States 100, you know, like that's, that's the jam, you know? And I think your interview with uh, Tommy's like, he's, a guy who's seen both of those, you know, he's like a very fiercely competitive person, but now it's just like, yeah, I'm just, I'm just sticking with it, just staying around. So that's more of my philosophy of running. Like there's just look at all these normal people out here, just crushing it, man. You know, like nobody made them come out here. Nobody in their office is like, Kevin, you should go try to run 50 miles. You know, it's like, wow, why are we doing this? And why is it, why are we motivated to do this? And what are we learning from it? Those are the like really interesting things to me, I think. I think this is a good point in the conversation to pivot toward your relationship with running. You mentioned earlier how you came into it through the ultra route and then, you know, did some road marathons after that. What was 
your entry point into running? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, so I ran a marathon. I mean, I ran uh, sprints in high school, not super fast, but it was on the four by one team. We, we missed qualifying for state by three hundredths of a second, if I remember right. So, um, so I was like, not the most explosive person, but could get going. Uh, so I ran 100s and 200s in high school and then never ran much in college. And then, yeah, I decided I was going to run a marathon to quit smoking, um, which like our friend Billy Yang, uh, also also a guy who yep. started running to quit smoking um, in 2006 and ran a marathon, the Denver, the first Colfax marathon in Denver. and was like, well, that was a thing I did and I will never do that again. Um, and then I got really into rock climbing and mountaineering for nine, nine years, most, yeah, like six or seven years, really, uh, really well. And I was interviewing Kelly Cordes, who's a climber, mountaineer, uh, big mountain climber, um, but also just a fantastic thinker and, um, writer, essayist. And we were talking about the idea of being hardcore and, I said, man, you've done all this, this stuff all over the world where things have gone wrong. You've all, you've been on the verge of death. Like you, you just, that's really hardcore. And he goes, oh, I don't know about that, man. You know who I think about when I think about being hardcore is my friends who are ultra runners. And I was like, Oh really? And he's like, yeah, you know, you're on top of a mountain or you're on your way up or you're way down. Something goes wrong. You don't have a choice. You have to keep moving to get back to civilization or you'll die. So it's very easy to get motivated. But if you're an ultra runner and you're running 100 miles and you get to mile 50 or 60, which at that point, no one is having fun. And you pass this aid station where they got a fire going, they got like, you know, food. What's stopping you from just sitting down in a lawn chair and being like, give me a beer and a bag of chips. I'm done. And he's like, but they keep going. And like, that's the real, that's the real hardcore thing. And I, it, I thought about that for probably five years, I think, after he he said that. And it, it stuck in my head for so long. And and then I signed up for an ultra with a friend of mine. And I hadn't trained hardly at all. I think I had like 23 or 24 days beforehand to do 50K. And I was like, you know, I've had big days in the mountains, you know, like, like I climbed the Grand Teton in a day with a friend, which is not a, it took us like 13, 14 hours, you know, just moving almost the entire time. And like, okay, well, I can move for 14 hours. An ultra marathon of 50K shouldn't take me 14 hours, but worst case, I can just hike, you know, walk the whole thing or run the first half and walk the rest. Um, and I made it through it and it was fine. And um, it was just that sort of thing where you're like, ah, I made it through 31 miles. I wonder what 50 feels like. You know, I wonder what... It. And, it lit the spark. Yeah, and coming from climbing, um, I had witnessed... Well, I had a climbing accident literally on a ledge right next to me um, in 2013 where we spent like six, seven hours helping get this kid off of Castleton Tower outside of Moab. Like, what are we, were like 100 feet off the ground for that long. And I had a lot of anxiety about climbing um, up until that point. And it was kind of like that just kind of broke the dam. And it was like, boy, this is what can happen if you fall or if things go wrong in the mountains and uh ultra running seemed like such a safe activity compared to climbing it was like climbers die you know ultra runners don't don't die that often you know in the activity i like i would say like 
ultra running, you just feel like you're going to die a lot, but not really. It's not, not that common. Um, so it was just this way to like really push myself and mentally and physically that wasn't, you know, you weren't one mistake away from death a lot of time, which, which you are a lot with rock climbing, even sport climbing, you know, that's relatively safe. Um, you can miscommunicate or tie something wrong or clip in wrong and it, things can go bad very quickly, but ultra running is just like, ugh, just a slog where, yeah, you just feel like you're going to die. So that was, that was how I came into it. So that might have something to do with the fact that I'm not very fast because I'm not really, it's all just interesting to me, you know? Um, but it didn't come at it from a running angle. I came at it from more of a like mountaineering perspective, I guess. Yeah. Where did it go from that first 50 K? I mean, you finished it and like you just mentioned, you're like, Oh, all right. I, I did that. Did the wheels immediately start turning to see if you could go even longer or do something even gnarlier? Did like, did that set you off on the path of, of being an ultra runner or maybe identifying as one in, in a certain way? Yeah, I think, well, within from 31 to 50 is not as big of a jump. So like we, a friend of mine, Jason, we like immediately, that's such an ultra runner statement. I have <laughs> Yeah, say. it is. It is. But like, it's not that big of a jump, only 19 more miles Well, from 26 to 31. You're like, that's only five miles after a marathon. But like, I think people approach it differently too. Like when people, when you meet somebody on like an airplane, they're like, Oh my God, you run a hundred miles without stopping. You're like, well, probably not really, you know, like you hike the uphills, you run the downhills and the flats for most of it. And then near the end, you're just like, just dragging your ass, whatever way you can get through it. So not really, no, but in their head, they're imagining running a 5k (laughs) for like 35 times. Like that doesn't, you know, that's bad. It's a bad deal. I don't think anybody, runs every step of the UTMB, right? Like, you know, Killian Journey is at the front and he's like hiking uphill, you know? So it's a different perspective for sure. And you're like, tack on another 19 miles. That's doable. But yeah, that is a very ultra runner thing to say. You're right. Well, to, <laughs> to interrupt you, to interrupt you again, the reason I, I say that, so I have been running distance since high school and I ran collegiately, always competitively raced on the roads and in other places after, you know, after college and I'd run trails before, but I would never have considered myself like a trail, like a trail runner as a thing. I just like, sometimes I ran on dirt and grass and, you know, off road in off-road environments. And my wife and I moved to the Bay area in 2014. I knew no one. And a friend of mine said, Go up to San Francisco Running Company on a Saturday. There's a great group run there. They'll go in the Marin Headlands. It's on trails. It's beautiful. You'll meet people. You'll love it. And I did that. And I met a lot of people who are still like very good friends to this day because we still live here in Marin County. And within three months, those suckers got me to sign up for my first 50K. And I had run probably half a dozen marathons uh, to that point. And I was horrified about the jump from 26.2 miles to 31. It was another 8K. And I I remember very distinctly being out on a run with Brett Rivers, who owned San Francisco Running Company at the time, veteran ultra runner, very good ultra runner as well. And I was like, yeah, I just like, I don't know what's going to happen after 26. It's another 8K. That's a long way to go. And he just laughed and... I was like, it's not that big of a deal for you. He goes, man, 
He's like, this 50K, it's just it's speed work for summer hundreds. And he said it so nonchalantly. And I was like, oh man, we're like, we are wired differently. Um, but still to say, you know, I went on, I ran that 50K, another one, I did 50 mile, I did, you know, the Grand Canyon thing. Like, I've done a lot of these like big adventures. I've done like ultra distance races, but I still don't have that mindset. Like I, I hear you say like, oh, you know, 31 to 50 is no big deal. I'm like, dude, it's still a big deal. <laughs> Any anyway, total total aside, but I get I get a kick out of that. Mathematically, it's a big deal, but also I think like the if you come at it from a road running perspective, like mostly, and I could be you could correct me if I'm wrong in this, but mostly road running, I feel like is very focused on your speed and your time, and like um, like yeah. when you refer to a marathoner as a two eighteen person or a two in my case mm-hmm. like a four hour whatever guy, and ultra running is more like you can't just be like oh they ran this distance in in this time therefore they can run this other 50 miler in the same amount of time it's like no 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 that one is in the san juan mountains in colorado there's no way that they're going to do that as fast the course is completely different and so it there's so much more nuance and um you know, maybe in your head, you're like, that's another 8k. So how many more minutes is that of running? And at what, you know, at what heart rate, you know, and to me, I'd be like, oh, I wonder when the last aid station is. Do they have Oreos? I wonder if they're gonna have Oreos. You know, or like, it's like, it's like a completely different thing. And like, oh, is there a big hill at the end? Is it all downhill from mile 26? Or like, what's the, you know, what are the things there? As opposed to like, oh, I got to keep this pace going for X amount of time. I think I'm just grateful to be able to survive the thing, you know? So it's like, yeah, whatever, if I make it great, but I'm probably not going to be that fast. Um, I think that's completely accurate because as, as a marathoner, yeah, I mean, a lot of folks do identify by the time, but if I, if I go run a marathon and I run a hilly run versus a flat one, it's a matter of minutes difference mm -hmm. that we're talking for that same distance, say the Chicago marathon, which is dead flat versus New York, which is known to be, hilly. I'll run faster at Chicago, but I might be like five to 10 minutes faster. Whereas, yeah, you could go run the way too cool 50K, which was my first 50K. It is a runner's race versus speed goat. And you're talking hours of of difference. So I'm coming at it from the perspective of, man, how am I going to keep that pace for another five miles or close to that pace for another five miles? That seems like an impossible task where an ultra runner looks at 19 and they're like, well, I just got to get there. And if I hike a little bit and I run when I can and I eat enough, like I'll be fine. Like I'll be, you know, I'll be okay. And I just, I mean, I totally appreciate and respect like those different mindsets, but it's still, it's hilarious to me uh, when I talk to like quote unquote ultra runners such as yourself um, who just come at it from a completely different perspective. I would be interested how you approach like rim to rim to rim. Did you, were you like... Did you stop and take photos or were you like, oh, we got oh, to yeah. crank in here? No, no, no. I, I, I mean, I can put myself in that mindset when I'm on the trails. I mean, I, it's funny you say that because I, I will never go for a road run with my phone, mm-hmm. but I will almost always take it when I'm out on the trail so that I can stop and take pictures. And sometimes I need to orient myself, but mostly to take pictures. Um, and rim to rim to rim, I did it with a group of guys who were varying ability levels. And it was established early on, like, hey, we are doing this as a, an adventure type of thing. And I, I had that mindset going in, like, we're going to stop, we're going to refill, we're going to eat, we're going to take photos, we're going to get to North Rim, 
We're going to have to put jackets on because it's colder up there, you know, all like, you know, all that sort of stuff. It, it, it's just a different mindset and I can adopt to that mindset, but it's the one going into it that's, you know, completely different. But I, I see it now again, like with athletes that I coach who come into ultra running and they just want to be hyper competitive. It's like, well, one, that's, that's not necessarily the culture. And two, you have to shift that mindset. Otherwise you are not going to enjoy this um, or have a long career in it if that's really what you want to do. I mean, you're not going to enjoy it anyway. Like, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, in retrospect, you will, you'll think it's great, but yeah, no, for sure. I I think that's what I, what I find so interesting about it too. Like I remember showing up to the, the first 50 mile I did was in Wisconsin on the ice age trail. Like my brother lives a couple hours from the starting line. I thought, Oh, let's go there and do that. And, you know, looking around the starting line of most ultra races, you know, beyond the, the few people who are competing to win at the front of the pack, most of us look really normal. Like I was like, we could just put on a bunch of softball jerseys and be like a Wednesday night beer ball league, slow pitch, you know, and like no one would know. But if you took this group of people and trotted them out, you know, in front of a, you know, uh, at an airport or something, we're like, these, these people are ultra marathoners. They run 50 miles at one stretch. People would be like, these people, you know, myself included, we don't look like we're, we're out there, you know, like we're not 3% body fat, you know, people, we don't look like, uh, Ironman triathletes. And I love that about it where you could look at someone before the race and think, Oh, is this person even going to finish? And they'll pass you like at mile 40 and you'll be like, Oh my God, they were, you know, they were sandbagging me totally. Like, you know, I had no idea that they had it in them. You know, it's such an equalizer, I guess, in, in that way. When you started ultra running, did you feel like you had found your people, so to speak? Um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. I kind of dip into things for a few years and I'm not very good at them. And then I'm like, um, I get a feel for, I like, I, I just want to understand them. Um, and I think I did in a sense for sure, you know, but I like have, I have a very sloppy brand where it's just all over the place. And I'm like very interested in creativity or like, I'm not that focused on writing. I do like illustration work and I make films too. And I'm really interested in adventure film and, and whatnot. And like ultra running is definitely, I would say it's probably the closest to my people in a sport that, that I've had, but like people who are into mountaineering, I I get to, and like climbing, I get, um, and each, each of these subsets of people has their own language and, you know, you're, you find somebody in who's into that same thing you're into at a dinner party. And then you're, you're like talking to them off the side and other people try to come into the conversation and they like start looking at you funny. Like you're just like, what language are you speaking? And then they leave and you're like, Oh my God, we all do this. You know, ultra runners do this. Climbers do this. Like, um, I'm sure other, other people who are in other sports do it. So yeah, I think, I think so. I think, um, especially the age when I did my first 50 K I was 36 and now I'm 43 like that's like sort of the age people kind of get into it like 30s and 40s um so there's you know the demographic considerations of it but yeah i mean i feel like it was such a great time in my life for it to happen with like our reliance on smartphones and like um our ability to be 
you know, to just like let ourselves be accessed by everyone at all times and like turning on notifications and blah, blah, blah. Like ultra running became this thing where it was like, it's so cool for me to be able to just be like, Hey, I'm going to go run 20 miles in the mountains and like turn my phone off, you know, and not talk to anybody for several hours besides the people I see on the trail, you know, and like, it's the only space I have that's really sacred, you know, um, besides leaving my phone outside of the bedroom at night. Uh, but yeah, that it really works for me to like, like for lack of a better term, generate ideas creatively, like go out and just meditate sort of. Um, yeah. We're on the same wavelength because that's exactly where I wanted to go next. We touched on it earlier professionally you create you write you draw you put out films you create t-shirts one of which i have on right now oh yes then running put in the miles so you can put in the miles so you can put in the miles which i love um i need to get a mug by the way um anyway that's how you spend your working time so how does being out on the trails whether you're by yourself or with a group of people unplugged from the rest of the world influence your creativity yeah i mean i think everybody you know we we all fantasize about oh if i just had a cabin in the woods you could just go there for like two weeks or a month i could write a book and it's like i've written books and that's not the reality unless i mean, maybe you know maybe maybe it is for some people but like more like you're trying to find time to write 500 words here a thousand words there but what we really want is stillness, right? Mental stillness. And like uh, one of your favorite authors and, and mine, Ryan Holiday, you know, has a book about stillness. But like, really, you're just looking to create that in your life. Like, how do you find a place where you can hit a flow state and just let your mind go, right? And a lot of times it happens on long drives if you're not listening to a podcast or really actively doing something else or people talk about how great ideas happen in the shower. It's like just enough engagement where you're doing something, but you're also, your brain has space to like actually think up stuff and, and running mm-hmm. is very similar to me. Um, cycling, whatever, just being outdoors and like not, you know, making a pact with yourself to not let your phone buzz or not check your email or the weather or whatever. Um, so yeah, like, sometimes if I'm really battling something, I'll just go walk around the block or walk around the neighborhood. But usually it's while I'm running and it can be a very small idea sometimes like, Oh, I wonder, uh, well, I'll just think about excuses that I have for running and write all those down in my head as I'm going, you know, for excuses to procrastinate running. And those small ideas are good for funny stuff, but then it also can be larger things where, just had these little aha moments and then I'll pull my phone out of my pocket at that point and be like, make a little note in my notes app and then start running again. You know, I'm like, okay, I'm good. You know? Um, so it's, I don't know how it would be if we hadn't had, you know, if technology hadn't hit at this exact time in my life to be the way it is. Um, but I think it was probably easier to be a writer, you know, 15 years ago when you were it was probably easier to be a writer who lacked discipline 15 years ago as opposed to now, <laughs> I should say, because, you know, for a lot of There's it, a lot of truth. To yeah. That. The biggest battle is just like shut everything off and just do the work, you know, deadbeat, just like, just do it. Like, what's your problem? Um, 
So running, running becomes that for me for sure. And like, it's also like you, um, you find a niche for, for some of the stuff you're doing. And I am like, really have a very unfocused, uh, everything, you know, but running is probably one of the things like people may think of me when they think of running content, I guess, or, um, stuff like that. So, and I'm able to channel that into like books and film and, um, drawings and articles and stuff like that. So that might be how some people find me. Um, but like one of the things I've been working on the last couple of weeks is I'm calling them bad, bad poems about condiments and they're all about condiments. And there's like these little drawings and one's about ketchup, one's about mustard, one's about pickles, you know? Um, and like, I think the people who find me through running, hopefully can also enjoy that type of stuff because we all, we've all used ketchup, you know, like, you know, so I don't know. It's it, I hope it's an entry point for people to enjoy other stuff. And I hope it doesn't turn off the people who are not runners when that stuff pops up, you know? No, I mean, I speaking for myself as a consumer of your content, I mean, that's part of the appeal um, because, you know, running is, how I became aware of you and through some of that stuff that you've created, but other things that you've put out, like writing about role for now I'm excited about this whole condiment poem series. <laughs> I don't get too excited. Um, it's really bad. Uh. Now I'm sure, I'm sure it's great. Uh, I mean, we're our own worst critics. So I'm taking that with a grain of salt, no pun intended. Um, but um, I, I think that's like, that just speaks to the fact that like running is, is part of, what we do and runner is only part of who we are. And I, and I try to take a similar approach in my own work. I mean, my newsletter is something I've been working on for seven years now. And when I, I started it, it was very similar when, when you were talking earlier about like, you know, creating your blog because it was somewhere that you could write about and do whatever you wanted to do. That's why I started the newsletter. I was working at competitor magazine as an editor and, you know, I could only, do certain things that fit with our content plan and our, our coverage plan. But I had all these other things, mostly running related that I wanted to put out into the world. And that was my outlet for doing it. And a lot of it was commentary, um, almost being a, a columnist of sort and getting opinionated about issues in, in the sport. And I don't really do much of that anymore. And over time, it evolved where I share a lot of things that are running related profiles on athletes and you know, workouts for people to do or studies that are that are being done. But then I start sharing stuff about writing and creativity or music, just other things that that interest me. And ninety nine point nine percent of the people who found my my newsletter are runners or identify as runners or have that as a, an interest of of theirs. But most of the the mail that I get uh, back to that topic is the other stuff life experiences that I've shared. One of the most clicked on things in my newsletter every week is whatever piece of music that I've, I've shared. And it's like, Oh, all right. Well, we share this like common bond of, of running. That's sort of what tied us together originally, but Hey, we kind of like some of the same music or you're at least interested to check that out. Um, Oh, you're, you're creative person yourself in your own ways. This, you know, article I shared about creativity is something that interests you. And, and I think that's like, really cool and and part of what makes us whole people yeah no i think you do a great job of that too and like that's uh that's the stuff that 
is I think people are just like, oh, that's so great, Mario. You're not just a robot who thinks about running all the time. Yeah, it's like, exactly. Yeah, oh, you have exactly. a personality. You have taste in music. Oh, you also like this band. And like, I think that's great. It's super humanizing. And also just, it's, there's so much stuff out there that I think a lot of us like to have a little bit of curation in our lives. We're like, oh yeah, I found about, out about this through this person, you know, who is not the algorithm, you know, like, I can't go to YouTube and find the thing that you put in your newsletter last week. Like yeah. it, it's almost, it, it's not going to pop up for me. You know, YouTube wants me to watch something different, but like you're a human, similar age, some, like part of your musical taste, you know, overlaps with mine. Like, yeah, great. I love, I love some of that stuff. We were going back about, we were going back and forth about covers of fast car, I think. Right. At one point. You and yes. I were like, yeah, like, like that's just cool. Like, and that's, would it take each of us like 45 seconds to share a link and write back and forth? And it's like, this is, this is improving my life experience by, by being able to have, you know, another music recommendation, whatever. So, yeah. Yeah. And it, it's kind of, even though it's, this isn't like my, um, my main intention, but it just shows people who are consuming my content, but all of us in general, that we're not one dimensional beings. Um, we're, we're multidimensional, multifaceted beings, even though we have common areas of, of interest. So you can have this, you know, have this entry point and then find other ways to, you know, connect with people. And I, I don't know, not to go off on too far of a, a tangent, but I think if we could, if we could do more of that, just societally, I think we'd be, you know, we'd be a lot better off um, versus, you know, it's a, the current social situation that we sort of find ourselves in, but we don't have to go down that, that road too far. Yeah. Where we always, you just want to put people in a box and then, you know, either identify with them or avoid them. Like, like, Oh yeah, let me, let me just put you in this category of people so I can hate you and disregard everything you say, as opposed to yeah. you're a complex human being who also likes the same band I do, even though you're, you voted differently than me. Yeah, I know it's, it's weird. So yeah, weird times. Professionally, how would you identify? Man, I'm just a guy trying to avoid work, I guess. Uh, by by working, I think you work like twice as hard to avoid like having to go to a real job. Into an office. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah it's so great to pay for my own health insurance in the US. But um, I don't know. I, like, I think I'm like, I remember the first time I somebody asked me what I did and I like, was able to say I was a writer truthfully and that was how weird it felt. It was like, I was like, like, what do you do? And I was like, I'm a writer. And I was like, it was like, I was putting on this sweater and being like, okay, all right. She bought it. And she's like, Oh, okay. What do you write about? And I'm like, well, no shit. Um, <laughs> so like, I don't know. I, I'm do, I do so many different things now that like, it's, I don't even, I teach a writing workshop every year. Um, and I don't, I, I question whether people think of me as a writer. Like a lot of people, like if people know about my work, if they're like, Oh, I didn't know you were a writer. You know, I thought you just drew these stupid cartoons on Instagram, you know, um, which is a real thing. So like artists seems a little lofty, but I like, if sort of fits better, you know, like I like making things and putting them out there. I like, one of the most fun things I've been doing over the past few years is designing t-shirts and coffee mugs to sell. And like, I love it. Like I made these greeting cards and I'm like, these are just fun to like, like 
build, you know, a thing and see if people like it. And to think about how the message that's on a t-shirt is different from the message that's on a coffee mug, because the t-shirt is something you want to communicate to other people. The coffee mug is probably something you want to communicate to yourself every day. Um, how that affects things and design and all those things. So if I was going to go back in time, I probably would have gone to art school, you know, or maybe I still should, but like, that's, that's fun for me, but professionally, yeah, I don't know if I, if I had a better idea of that, I probably wouldn't have so much. I think I'd have a stronger business because I, my brand would be a little more focused, but I don't know, man, I just like doing stuff and like putting it out there and seeing if it helps people in some way, I guess. To me, it sounds like you think about what it is you want to convey, the message it is that you want to get out, and what's the best outlet for that. Is that a blog post or something I send through the newsletter and it's mostly text and words? Is that a cartoon that I put on Instagram, people scroll through and you know get a little chuckle at the end but say like, yeah, that's spot on? Or you know, is it is it something like I have on right now, like my t-shirt that says put in the miles so you can put in the miles. And it's like, I think you call it the, the Zen of running. And I mean, when I wear it out, people see it and they're like, huh, that's cool. And they, they think about it and they, and they sort of get it, but maybe that wouldn't hit quite so well if that was the subject line of an email that you put out, you know what I mean? So, um, I don't know. It sounds like you just, you, you find what it is that, you know, you want to convey and then think about the best way to, to do it and are open to having different mediums. Because on the flip side of that, I've been guilty of this. I know certainly other people that are like, nope, I'm a writer. Writers write must be, you know, published magazine article or something that ends up on a major website. Otherwise, you know, that like, I'm not, not doing an email newsletter. I'm not doing a t-shirt. Like, you know, I'm not open to these other things, um, but you are. And maybe that makes things messy sometimes, but I feel like probably helps to get your stuff out um, more than, you know, sitting on something where you're like, yeah, I just, I don't know if this is, you know, meant for social media or newsletter or whatever. Yeah. You know, and I totally agree with that for sure. And like, I think the thing is you can limit yourself with that idea, you know, like, Oh, I'm just a writer. I could never do that. There is a very real limitation for sure. People, um, like I don't, I can't draw, you know, and somebody will be like, Hey, you should draw this thing for us. I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. You need to talk to somebody else who can actually fucking draw like a hand. You know, I can't do that. Um, I could definitely trace something and get a message out there, but I don't draw images without words. And like, it's like, you know, there's, I have, there's, you know, when I think, Oh, what's the best way to get this idea out there? I'm like, well, if I could do that, that'd be great. But that's not me. It's for somebody else. So, um, the thing that's been really freeing for me is having, like, I'm not, um, I wouldn't say I'm like mega successful, but I've got enough going that I can go on a lark and do a stupid idea that may or may not make money, you know, like sell certain hats or something like, okay, I'll, I'll pay to have those printed and hopefully they, hopefully I break even, you know, and, um, I recently put together this book of recipes called 15 second recipes. It's just like, I just have all these boxes of it sitting behind my desk. I'm just waiting to, I need to put it out and I'm gonna have to mail them all myself. But I work with a publisher and I was like, Hey, I got this idea. It's really dumb. It's like, 
eat a handful of cereal. Like that's one of the 25 recipes. And I want the book to be, it's going to be 36 pages. And it's like, it's all ridiculous. There are all these little hand illustrations. And, you know, my editor's like, yeah, I don't think that'd work for us. I'm like, okay, cool. I'm just going to self-publish it, you know? And, uh, which is fun for me. And like, hopefully it makes, you know, people laugh and they buy it for friends or whatever. And yeah, maybe I'll like break even. Like, that's cool. I don't mind spending a lot of time putting it together and mailing it out. And, you know, hopefully it, hopefully it doesn't bankrupt me or whatever. But I talked to a friend a few weeks ago, who's a writer too. And she mentioned putting together a proposal for an agent. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes I, I wonder if I should try to get an agent for some of the ideas I have, but some of them I just don't think are, you know, going to sell very much. So I'm going to just self-publish them. And she said, yeah, you know, like my, what I do is like try to put together a proposal and find that person, you know, who's like the agent can tell you whether or not that's going to sell well, you know, to a point. And I was like, oh yeah. I mean, that's probably the problem because I just don't care. Like I just want to put it out there. (laughs) And she, and I was like, I mean, yeah, is this book going to be a bestseller? Am I going to get in the New Yorker? No. You know, am I like going to be able to connect with a few hundred people maybe? Hopefully, you know? Um, and she said, well, that's what make that makes you an artist. And I was like, oh, wow, that's actually really flattering. And I'm like, I feel like that's the biggest compliment anybody's ever given me. I'm like, that's, I love it that that's how you see it. You know, that it doesn't have to, doesn't have to make money. So let's just make the thing. And you can't do that with a hundred percent of the stuff you do. Like some of it has to make money, but it's fun to me. Like that's probably the best thing about it where you can make a thing. And if it works great, if it doesn't, you learn the lesson or whatever, but it's still out there, you know? Um, and I don't think anything's ever going to be hundred percent successful, but it's fun to be able to be able to do things like that and try out a t-shirt design and Oh, I thought that'd do a lot better, you know? I mean, there's prints I've made that have taken me hours to do the drawings and then, you know, I'll put it online and I'll be like, ah, this might go somewhere and no one will, like, no one will buy it. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that didn't work. One of my prints is, like, this joke about other horns of Switzerland that aren't the Matterhorn and they're, like, one of them is like the mountain is wearing a Metallica t-shirt and says it's called the nothing else matters horn and stuff like that. And no one bought this print, but the person who I had the inside joke going with is my friend, Doug, who has this company called run the Alps. And I like, I made the print and I like sent it to him in a frame and he has it hanging in his office as this memory of this joke. He and I riffed on while walking within a view of the Matterhorn. I'm like, well, that was fun. You know, I, that was a giant waste of time, but it's a really elaborate joke that I was able to give somebody a gift. So that's cool, I guess. But there's a lot of that, you know, where you're like, I guess that didn't work. Okay. Humor is a big theme in a lot of your work. What is your relationship with humor? And that's a good question. I feel like probably since I was a, elementary school kid i've just been like trying to lob jokes from the back of the classroom and see if people laugh at them you know um and it's professionally i think it's the quickest way to make a difference in somebody's life maybe it's a defense mechanism or something like that i don't even know you know like um it just seems like a way 
my preferred way to communicate, I guess. I mean, I come from, my family's funny. My dad's funny. My mom's family. My mom, I would not have said it was funny growing up, but my mom's family, and my mom has gotten to be even funnier the older she gets, but my mom's family is just straight up people making each other laugh every time they get together for just like, it's just this building thing that just keeps, you know, propagating itself throughout dinner or whatever. And it's just like, who's going to crack this joke and who's going to make everybody laugh. And like my earliest, one of my earliest memories of hanging out with my mom's family is she has six brothers and sisters. I was like, one of these days I'm going to make my uncle Steve or my uncle Dan laugh. And it probably took me until I was like 15 you know, and even then it was a fluke. But after that, it was like, okay, I did this. And growing up, I, you know, would go to friends' houses or like, you know, um, people I would date in high school. And I'd be like, man, I think, I think her dad really doesn't like me. And I realized now it was just like, no, they're just not funny. You know, like people just don't sit around trying to crack each other up. Like that's not a thing that exists everywhere universally people just kind of chill and, you know, maybe there's not a lot of laughter in their households and they just kind of always was with mine. So, which is, I think my preferred way of living. Um, but it was like, oh, no, they like you. They just aren't like cracking jokes all the time. Like, Oh, okay. Okay. That's fine. Uh, I'll take that differently then. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's an easy thing for me and it's the, there, you know, you want to like have a genuine connection with people too, beyond humor. And I think early on, I probably questioned whether I could write about serious stuff and be funny. And I think you can, you know, it's like, I think of them all as just like, they're just songs, you know, that you put out and some of them are hits and some of them aren't. And some people connect with a, a deep cut on an album for some reason. And, you know, some people are into, Pearl Jam. Some people also like Eddie Vedder's ukulele album. Some people don't, you know, like, but he can do that. So, you know, we can do that too. You know, we can try humor. We can try being serious. We can try the heart wrenching stuff, you know? Um, so I hope people feel free to do that as creatives, you know, like, and don't, don't feel like we can only do one thing, you know? Um, but humor is the easiest thing for me. Like, I don't have to think about it as much. I feel like, and it's, the price for failure is generally with the humor I do, which is I, um, my number one rule is I only can make fun of us. I can never make fun of them. Um, so if I can include myself in the group, it's fair game. But if not, it's like just, just mean spirited. So with that in mind, the general response to my stuff is not usually, um, combative or anything like that it's just like ambivalence you know it's like it's either funny or people ignore it so it's a there's not that big of a risk i feel like um i'm sad when people don't find the same thing funny but it's not like um you know it's not doesn't end up being like these uh arguments online or political battles or whatever um because it's like even if it's funny and you're being a dick you're still a dick you know um and I don't know. It's the business. rule number one. Don't be a dick. Yeah. I mean, for real, like there's so much of that stuff out there now. And it's like, 
oh, God, that was such a devastating takedown, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, cool, yeah, that's really helping things right now for sure. You know, great. You know, you're just adding to this division that we have right now, and, you know, we're just siloing ourselves off further. So it's it's hard to escape, but, like, I prefer that sort of thing, you know. Um, I think about, like, Dave Chappelle, you know, like, who is just a genius, you know, and like he's been going on like years of just punching down on trans people. I'm like, really, this is, this is what we're doing now. Like, like you really just can't get off this and make fun of somebody else. Like, I don't know. It's so, it's sad to me. And like, it's disappointing in, in a bigger way. Um, I like, man, I would watch your stuff and I would be such a big fan, but like, this is just, you're just being mm-hmm. a dick, you know, like, and sure it's a very small group of people and you know, there's a much larger group of people who are, you know, who are not those people who are you, who you obviously consider to be your main audience, but like, why don't you just not be an asshole instead? And like, I'm sure you can think of other jokes, you know? Um, but I don't know. He's, he's obviously more successful than me. So I, maybe, maybe I shouldn't talk so much. Well, I mean, it depends how you define success. success. I mean, yeah. you seem pretty content in, your own life. And I think that's what's important, not how many people are, you know, looking at your stuff necessarily or how much money you made or how many people you, you know, you hear back from. It's like, you know, at the end of the day, are you happy with what you're doing? Um, and that seems to, seems to be the case based on, you know, the conversation that, that we're having here. So I don't know, I'd say that you, you're probably more successful than Dave Chappelle <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. That's yeah. You think about like, Oh, I could be more successful if I was, a jerk like yeah but then i have to be a jerk so i don't know yeah who knows how are your dad jokes coming along man you know i i thought about this so like when we i'm i was 43 almost 43 and a half when jay was born and i i was talking to hillary about it about these different things about having a child and like you know like there's this um phenomenon it's traditionally known as a midlife crisis with this u-shaped curve of happiness where in your 40s you kind of have this dip uh, men and women and you're kind of like entering this point in your life where you're wondering is this all there is to life you know and and by the time you're in your late 40s and early 50s you're like yeah it is and that's fine you know and i was like well our kid could be the like thing that keeps me out of the u-shaped curve but i also have felt like the last few years i'm like trying to like remain um like trying to stay trying to be cool or be relevant is like the 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 battle i feel like oh yeah i need to like be up on certain things and try to pay attention to what people are doing so i can keep making jokes about it i was like man once you become a dad the pressure's off right it's like all your shit's dad (laughs) jokes no matter what so like i don't know i'm just a dad you know like i don't know what's cool kids um, so I hope that's the case, but, um, Hillary did buy me a book of dad jokes and, uh, I mean, honestly, I'm pretty, I would say a good 50% of my stuff is dad jokes anyway. And like, <laughs> who knows, but I, I was like, they just automatically become dad jokes at this point, but yeah. Last question to wrap this one up. So I've taken a lot of your time to this point, bring it back to, the beginning you are 
add a new just phase of of life as as a dad. Um, but also, I think that's going to, as we just talked about, inform your creativity. It's going to have an effect on your relationship with running. If you could kind of drop your you know best case scenario for the next five years, like what are you working on? Where is running taking you? And you know, how do you share that with your son? Man, that's a, you know, I want to say first that for somebody who has zero questions written down, you are, this is pretty amazing. I would say like you literally, you literally said at the beginning, I have no questions. And I was like, well, okay, we'll see where this goes. So you're obviously a pro at this. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I have a book manuscript I've been working on that is like this weird book about endurance that's mostly about running, but also about uh, research about rats and childbirth and structure of stories and screenplays and all this weird shit and all these illustrations that I'm trying to work on. So I would like that to be out in the next five years um, some, in some fashion. But uh, I'm just kind of like, yeah, hey, maybe I need to ask some friends to read this and see if it actually hangs together like I think it does. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think... Um, running for me right now is it's still number one as far as ways that I want to move in the outdoors and and get outside and um you know I don't currently own a treadmill um so it's a way for me to force myself to get out and be in nature year round at this point even micro spikes through the snow uh and whatever um and, you know, we have a jogging stroller and I'm not, I'm not sure how it's all going to fit together, but I know people do it and I know moms do it. I know moms who are pumping breast milk do ultra marathons. I've literally seen it, you know? So, um, I think it can still happen. And I think, um, I think I'm glad to have a reservoir of, a lot of experience in the past few years to draw on and know like what things, how things work so that I don't feel like I have to frantically go and do a ton of races and maybe I can be a little, little selective about it and figure, figure that out. But I mean, people make it work, right? It's just like, I don't know how it's all going to affect everything. And I don't know, like you can be like kids do this or kids do that. And it's like, they're people, man people don't all do the same thing or all do this or all do that. So it's like, this person is going to become a person and we're going to, we're going to navigate around him and we're going to have, we're going to force him to do some things that we don't want to lose. So I don't know what that's going to look like. And I'm trying to just be flexible and and figure it out um, without starving. You know, we need to, we need to keep a roof over our heads and keep food on the table. So that's, that's that biggest thing. But yeah, I mean, we're already talking about like, well, he's two months old. Do you think we could get him up this mountain? I'm like, maybe we should start with a closer one that's a little shorter. And like, I'm like, I don't know about how much shade there is. And like, what do we, you know, maybe we should wait till we can get him in the big backpack with the frame. Like how, how long can you have a baby Bjorn on you? And I don't know. It's going to be interesting, but um man, I don't know. That's, a, I don't know why I just talked for two minutes. I should have just said, I have no idea. 
but yeah, I think I'll try to keep doing stuff and keep telling stories. And I think like the model for me is always like try to be out there and try to do interesting things and, and report back no matter what it is. If it's like raising a kid or running ultra marathons or climbing mountains, like, you know, like find things that you're motivated by and interested in and like pursue them with enthusiasm and then try to, you know, try to capture that feeling and report back to, to people and try to try to capture those sort of universal human elements to it um, in order to connect with people. So we'll see, man, we're, we're in the middle of getting our asses kicked and I think it's going to be unrelenting for a while. So you said 18 years and I was like, you know, I think I disappointed my parents well into my mid twenties. So okay, I got that one coming. So, Well, I appreciate you carving a couple hours out of your day to sit here and talk with me. I've been hugely inspired and entertained and informed by your work. So keep on doing it. But thank you so much for joining me on the Morning Shakeout podcast. Man, thank you so much, Mario. All right, that's it for this episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. Also, a big thank you to New Balance for helping make it possible. The new Fresh Foam X More V4 is a maximum cushion shoe with a responsive ride that I'm really enjoying for recovery runs right now. It's super plush, but also incredibly light. You can check it out at newbalance.com or at your favorite run specialty retail store. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give a shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford. He has produced every episode of the podcast and is the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. Also, thank you to Chris Douglas for being my right-hand man and handling sponsorship sales, and Jeffrey Stern for managing the AM Shakeout social media accounts. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys have been crucial in helping keep things running smoothly here. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter, also called The Morning Shakeout, at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe, and in it, you'll get a collection of things that I've been thinking about reading and listening to lately that you might enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's all I've got for this one. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.